Hello, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. I'm hosting today. This is Alan Waima. Today I have Adi Angar on the panel. Hello, Adi. Hello, hello. And we have Diago. Di, did I say that wrong again? Yeah, slightly. <laughs> uh, so we have, you're a man of many names, first of all. So it's hard for me to keep track which name to call you because you keep telling me you keep changing your name because too many people around you choose the same name. So you're, you're a trendsetter basically by name. Yeah. If you open my website, the first line that you probably see there is that people call me one or the other. So it's actually a, a pretty common thing for people to miscall me per se. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, I believe your your first name is actually uh, Jose, right? But that's you said that's a very yeah. common name. It's no relation to the other Jose we know, right? What Jose? Jose Volim. You don't know Jose Volim? It's the same name, yeah, but uh, no relation. But no, you're not related, <laughs> okay. Just want to... No. <laughs> you weren't named after him, right? <laughs> Probably. I'm a few years younger, I guess. I'm not sure if my parents knew him. But... How old do you think Jose Volim is, man? Uh, I didn't say it like that. I mean, you know, maybe he's just that powerful when he was young. Everybody, everyone who knew him. <laughs> it's not easy to create a programming language as awesome as Elixir, right? So I think uh, yeah, know, true. Has some skill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I don't think my parents are that much tech connoisseurs on that sense. So I'm not sure if that was the case. But I mean, kind of going back to to you, right? You're saying uh, you're a full stack developer, right? Yeah, true. What kind of company are you actually working at? What are you doing uh, every day? Okay, good question. So my company is called Finium. We work as a fintech consultancy team. We are a pretty small team and we help other businesses or um, founders to get their their projects from the, the ground up to, to being out there. We usually work with, in small bursts. I would say like six to, to nine months of the project. So we, we just get the product out there and help the, the clients build uh, an internal team and we jump on to the to the next thing. From on the last 18 months, I'd, I'd say, uh, we've been working pretty much on blockchain and Web3 related stuff. Yeah, it's, we do a lot of things. I'm a full stack, but uh, I spend most of, most of the time on the backend. Yeah, being part of a smaller team, you you, you need to be everywhere. So we always have that uh, that that thing. Now, for you guys, you're saying that you go to companies and you help train up their their team. Is that what I heard correctly? Uh, I wouldn't say train. We help if the client starts by himself. We help him recruit and. Uh, and build uh, their own team. We can give them training. We have done that in the in the past because at the time the client started with a couple of, um, I would say, friends and they were devs, but they didn't have the specific knowledge of the technology we were using at the time. So we spent a, a couple of months training him into, into the tech. Are you specifically only Elixir or are you using some other technology or, or how does that work? Yeah, good question. We we use a bunch of things, but I would say Elixir is top of the stack. We have used uh, Node.js for, for backends or Ruby on Rails, depending on the on the situation. And the front end, we pick most, mostly pick React or, or Svelte. We have never used the full monolith application with Elixir. Elixir is most of the times only in the backend with a, with an API. Now, how is that conversation to to throw up Elixir? Because I know I always have this issue. People say, what? what? What's that? Like, is there like a lot of reservations on using Elixir? Or, I mean, what's the experience like? Yeah, it has happened before, mostly because people don't, don't know it. I'm not really sure why. I would say that it has 
pretty much a lot of exposure nowadays, but still a lot of people don't don't know it in the space. And not even by when you say, oh, the Elixir compiles to the Erlang virtual machine, etc., just to make sure that people get to to know. But most of the times, if they don't know one, they don't know the other also. And you kind of need to show what advantages you have of all that uh, resilience and fault tolerance, the getting stuff quick out of the out of the ground because you can i think we can spend much time talking to a prospect client talking yeah we can do this you can do that and in a couple of days you can actually get them something to see and with elixir you can you can get it so i think when when they get that blow you you actually end up saying oh yeah okay uh, we can go with this now, I mean, Elixir is really not traditionally a, like a fintech kind of language. You usually think of things like Java or C++ or things like that. I mean, for people that do know it, I mean, is there pushback to say, well, this is not like traditional and we, you know, we're worried about this and that, even if they do know the language? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. To be honest, I, I, I don't know how to answer it because I, I never experienced that those type of arguments or, or questions. I know that, well, Java, Java is basically used everywhere. So that's where most of the time people try to choose. I had one personal experience once, and um, it but instead of Java, it was instead of using JavaScript, uh, so as Node.js for the backend, which we end up going with it, and it wasn't the best idea. So looking back, we kind of regret it. At least I kind of regret it. That's an old... What what actually happened? I'm kind of curious because usually that's a... Java is probably the biggest language when it comes to fintech, right? uh, JavaScript, JavaScript, sorry. Sorry, JavaScript. Okay, so JavaScript was the issue. Was it... I mean, what was the exact issue? Because even that's really, really popular, right? That usually is something people be really interested to use. Yeah, the biggest issue for us was background managing, background jobs managing. We used BullMQ, if I, if I remember correctly, but it started to get uh, to be a bottleneck in our in our application pretty pretty fast. So yeah, that that's mostly where we where we regret on it. So what was the what was the fix? Was it switching over to Elixir, or what? You know, how did you manage to solve this issue? Yeah, we at the time we actually when the, when it started to to become a bottleneck. It was when we were ending off to to the client because we are already finishing up the the project. He had already he had already his internal team. So to be honest, I don't know how that went through. That's one of the saddest parts of being in a consultancy this type, where you actually don't keep your uh, you don't keep your stuff. So I don't believe they changed to Elixir. Okay. I mean, I'm totally sure they didn't change to Elixir because they didn't knew it. They know it, so I don't know uh, how that went. I actually, Alan, I actually feel Elixir and Erlang, the whole Beam ecosystem, is probably the best for fintech. And I think it lasts almost like three or four years, people have started to realize that. And there's so many fintech platforms that have been started to build in Elixir. They know that, okay, their raw speed may or may not be there. But with the capabilities of horizontal scaling today, you can minimize lag. You know, you can, you can be completely event-driven, which you which is probably what you want to be event-sourced, rather, for, for a fintech app, have resiliency of like something like RabbitMQ or even like Kafka wrapped around an Elixir shim, which gives you a lot of resiliency. And then the scale it enough to minimize the lag. Like uh, I know BlockFi, when I was 
when I was there. I mean, I don't want to, you know, talk too much. I know they're like bankrupt and stuff now, but they, they were dealing with a good amount of scale and around the time when I left and there was basically no lags for each transaction, like each uh, currency updates, account updates, like because, you know, some people were using BlockFi as like a regular trading platform, not like a bank, which is not what it was supposed to be. People are day trading on BlockFi and it was able to handle that load pretty, pretty easily. Without even spending, I think from remember it was like less than eight hundred thousand a month on infrastructure for that level of um, scale, and th- that's another thing Elixir provides, right? Like if you write this in like JavaScript, Java, all these apps, you would have to kind of over index on horizontal scalability. You'll spend a lot more money in infrastructure to handle less scale because it, the systems aren't as resilient, right? So I, I actually feel like certain Erlang are the best <laughs> right now for fintech. No, I don't disagree with you, right? I'm actually working on a fintech project at the moment, and we're using, obviously, we're using Elixir for the back end. It's actually, now that you reminded me, there was a guy who worked at Goldman Sachs who got prosecuted for stealing some of the source code and handing it over. I think he was working on a full-on trading system in Erlang, which is kind of interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like Goldman's actually using Erlang, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, for everything you said, of course, I think it's, it's fantastic, right? Because I always hear about, you know, low latency uh, trading using Java and how you can, you know, they, they keep fighting the GC and, you know, how to allocate as little bit of memory as possible until you you just almost hit the GC limit, right? As opposed to something else. Yeah, I knew that BlockFi, as you mentioned, used Elixir. And we also had a, a previous client. It, it's actually a close business to us. It's called Utrust. They process payments from crypto to fiat currencies. We worked with them. We worked with them and we helped them actually do not the full thing we when we just worked on a specific part i i can't talk much about it but they also use elixir all, all in all of their in all of their uh, pro, um, platform and yeah as you said they they have the, the same advantages it was pretty it, it's pretty scalable it's reliable all that all those things that are cool in the system the ecosystem with Erlang, and also they have um they used event sourcing, so CQRS, also very easy to implement it for keeping track of transaction states, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I think Elixir is gaining up ground on on the fintech space. But yeah, personally, I still see a lot of JavaScript, JavaScript stuff on the backend mostly. Yeah, I'm also gonna like do like a a plug here. Like my current company, the Score, is a sports company, but I'm working in their bet part of the system and we are completely pedal stack fintech <laughs> completely on pedal stack we handled i think millions of users i wouldn't say like five or six million users actively placing bets during super bowl this last super bowl perfectly with elixir commanded even sourced was i think maybe one or two minor bugs in production and it, it, it yeah the resiliency of sheer resiliency and ease with which you can spin up such a high performance application with elixir it, it's kind of mind-blowing you know you cannot do that in any other application or any other language yeah yeah i agree it, it's amazing that like nobody else really actually looked at this I and mean, there's so many industries using erlang it's it's really crazy like erlang or even elixir of course and not you mentioned about the betting right can't think about simple bet i mean so many people but yeah now we're drifting off into you know something everybody in the audience i'm sure already knows about but what not everybody does know about so sadly you know i don't get to play around with too much uh data science let alone the data science stuff happening in Elixir, which is probably one of the hottest parts going on right now. You wrote an article about how to use, I forgot which part of it, but how to use some data science within Elixir for like figuring out how to spread out your, I don't know what you even call that, it's like spread out your, your portfolio. 
Isn't that right? I wouldn't say that was the the main goal. Actually, it was an hackathon project. It started in a, an hackathon project. And the, to be honest, I just wanted to use genetic algorithms in any place at the time. I was reading the the book, and for a few for a few days, for a few weeks, I've been complaining and uh, nagging everybody to, hey, let's use genetic algorithms in the in the hackathon. Let, let's use genetic algorithms here. All that all that stuff. So um, I tried to basically get uh, where can I fit this because I really wanted to try it. Um, we had that idea for um, uh, actually the project called Mat- Matuzalem. I don't know even how to say it. Uh, doesn't really matter, but the idea was to make it a pension, like a pension fund for uh, crypto assets. the The main goal was to you don't get fiat currencies, you 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 invest Ethereum, uh, ETH, and you you get uh, ETH in return. What assets should we make our quote investment portfolio and quote be? So the main goal was to actually have just a couple of assets. That don't really matter which. But actually, then we saw, well, this is an opportunity for me to to plug in genetic algorithms and we can actually get something out of out of the way out of that. So, yeah, let's let's try. And we actually ended up selecting selecting a few assets randomly. The the only one that was pre-selected was um, Ethereum staking because it, it counts as the the f- zero risk or the free risk investment as you actually get in uh, government bonds and etc cetera, etc cetera. so we wanted to have that one as uh, our metric and the others were were pretty much selective randomly and we just wanted to make a few yeah i gotta be honest this was an hackathon it had the prizes involved we wanted to have the most buzzword and all the cool things around so genetic algorithms and making predictions for um, for the the best assets to be there was actually the the final idea but i wouldn't say that it started that way so i'm not sure if i answered your question well i mean you basically said that you wanted to kind of play around with it and use uh, genetic algorithms as a as an excuse right yeah yeah pretty much it to be honest for a few days I try to basically make everyone just do genetic algorithms on chain. So instead of making it, I wanted to port the Elixir code to something that would work on chain just because it had genetic algorithms. But then no one wanted to listen to me and they gave me like this. So play with this and uh, be quiet for a, for a second. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Because I already had the, the Elixir code at least the framework that's given to you by by the book, you then obviously need to make a couple of changes that we can talk about next. But you, you always need to change or update or mold your your the framework to to make sense in your use case. Yeah, I mean, I do have the book. I just never cracked it open, right? What exactly does it mean to, to be some kind of genetic algorithm? I have no idea what that means, sorry. Yeah, yeah, good question. I had heard of it before because I, I have a background in data science from back from college and my master's degree. And we never studied directly genetic algorithms, with, but, it, but it's one of those things that you actually end up knowing that exists and where it can be used at. So starting from the beginning, genetic algorithm is uh, an optimization solution to, to a problem, to a specific problem. Most of the times, or you can use genetic algorithms everywhere, 
but most of the times they are used for uh, finding solutions to problems that are really difficult to to find a solution to. Uh, the main example that I like to to use is the knapsack problem. You've probably heard of it. It's that one that then can be extrapolated into a lot of different situations. But you have uh, a container; it's a knapsack, and you have different sets of things that you want to store there, different sizes, and you want to optimize the best. Uh, space to amount of things on start on that on that knapsack. Have you heard of it? Should I go a bit deeper? No, can I go to the next thing? Yeah, you can go ahead. Yeah, cool. So yeah, uh, you can use genetic algorithms to to solve that as an optimization problem. You don't have a, a guarantee that you will find the optimal solution. You just have a guarantee that you'll find a pretty good one. And then genetic algorithms, as the name say, as the name says, it, it works pretty much as genetic evolution in our in the nature works. So you start with a population, ideally initialized randomly, because well, you, you can't actually make it evolve from something else. You need to start it some some way. You start it uh, randomly, and then um, each population. So you, you can each generation you evaluate that that part, that population and check if the best element of that population already solves your your problem yeah most of the times you have uh, a final value that you want to optimize up to or you even know that it's the solution but you don't know how do you get to the solution so that's how you know when you actually end up stopping it but yeah and every time you don't get to the solution you make make your children so you cross over parents the best parents get crossed over you also uh, introduce a couple of mutations that i can also talk a bit about later and then you always repeat the process so simple six steps if you if you look on the original on the, my blog post and also it's present on the book you initialize you evaluate you select parents you create children and mutate and you start over to evaluate until you actually end up stopping does it make sense yeah yeah so it's it's basically i think a cool way of saying yeah i mean really finding a set of combinations of inputs that yield a desired result <laughs> right yeah so so like that's like what you meant by like kind of fitness right like the 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 fitness criteria is when you meet that you stop your mutations and stuff like that and initial selection can can still happen randomly or in a specific way that's something this uh, that everything goes under the same umbrella of genetic algorithm like you could go you could have a random one you could have i don't know <laughs> whatever uh, algorithm of selection itself so it could just be a pure brute force algorithm that optimizes for you know a function so i think i think you put it really well it's an optimization yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say it's brute force because ideally you, after a couple of generations, you mostly discard, you start discarding the worst possible solutions. But yeah, as you, as you said, the perfect right. word is uh, an optimized brute force for, uh, algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the population can be initialized randomly, but the part that you need to tweak for each use case is how actually you initialize and encode your inputs to make it make sense for the actual solution you want to get. For example, in this case, it was for a portfolio optimization. So our inputs, we had, um, let's start from what is what. So you can think of uh, genes here that uh, belong to a chromosome and the chromosome is a, is a member of our population. And each gene uh, in our use case was encoded 
as the percentage or of the allocation we wanted to give to that asset. So if we want, if we have 10 assets in our portfolio and we want to optimize the distribution of our funds, we can have a, let's call it a, an array or a list of 10, 10 numbers. Uh, initialized randomly from zero to to 100. Obviously, everything at the end needs to be at the maximum of of 100. So you you can't allocate more than uh, than what you have. And then uh, it, you pretty much go go you start with that and you evaluate always on, on those numbers. But for example, other problems can be encoded as binary inputs. So you you either have this or you don't. So it's a zero, only a zero or a one. That's one of the toughest part. That was one of the toughest parts on our use case was to actually n- not initialize, but to work with a, a range of numbers and not something that was either on or off. So you have it or you don't have it. And in, I introduced a couple of slight bugs into our evolution that were pretty hard to, to debug. I can give a, an example, but you have, as I said, you, you will, everything needs to to 100 100% because we don't want to be supposedly investing more than what we have available. So when you initialize, you need to make sure that everything is under 100. That's a pretty simple thing to to do. You can make, select random numbers and then normalize them and make everything under 100 and making sense. But to be honest, we didn't start that way because, well, it was an hackathon, all of that rush everyone trying to to do stuff so we just did we started as let's initialize this randomly and uh, we know that everything is below 100 because some stupid metric that uh, i remember not things are not normalized so when you actually get to the second stage when you evaluate people when you evaluate the population we actually did looking back it, it was very stupid we said so if you are over 100, you're um, considered invalid, so you are unfit. So you have a fitness fitness function of zero. It's basically saying you, if you say this has zero, you don't survive. <laughs> and our our fitness function wa- wa- was pretty much the beginning, very simple thing. So you have uh, expected return for a specific asset. If we want to allocate 10% to this asset, our fitness function is. 10% times this uh, re- expected return, the next percent of the second asset times its uh, expected return, and then we uh, just sum everything, a pretty simple account. So the chromosomes that would give us return as higher number of expected returns uh, would be the, the best ones. But the thing is that the ones that were higher 100%, we were just given the uh, slap them as zero and evolve, ev- evaluating to the next and evolving to the next to the next generation everything will be zero basically or third generation fourth generation after a couple of generations everything was zero and the hardest part here of debugging is that this is always running random stuff and a lot of them so you just see like 10,000 generations it's I would compare this to debugging distributed systems because you don't know why things are the way they are in the sense of where this where this is coming from you don't know how is this getting to zero or how is this giving so such bad returns and then we end up discovering that we were penalize, penalizing too much the good the good chromosomes because when you were reaching 100% so this is getting very good we were actually killing them say 
oh, you're too good, you went over 100%, you are now invalid, so you get a zero on the fitness function. So <laughs> eventually, when we actually get it to start getting better, we destroyed everything. So it's uh, that was one of the problems. Nice. Yeah. I mean, to me, it sounds like, I mean, the fitness function itself could have been could have accounted for that. If there was a possibility for fitness to be more than 100, maybe, you know, the fitness function itself should kind of be more dynamic. But yeah, I mean, it's it's also hard, right, when you're playing with only integers, right? Like, have you have you tried using NX or something like that? Like, you know, I'm also, I've also been very curious, like, since the beginning of the episode, like, could, how, how would these algorithms go with NX? That'll allow you to, like, also replace your integer operations with, like, just any data, right? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> like that's a good tensor. question. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, actually. You were right in the, on the first part, saying that our fitness function was, was wrong, at least the... the first couple of versions and that's one of the things that you you need to also always be be constantly uh, changing and tweaking to make it to make it work for your situation about the next part of the nx and the integer operations at the time we wanted to make the encoding of the inputs as simple as possible so we just said so let's go with uh, with integer uh, solutions and we don't get intermediate value so you either put 1%, 2%, 3%, let's ignore the rest. So yeah, pretty much like in a physics class, let's ignore all those variables that make this hard. We have uh, 24 hours to make it work and let's go Let's go with this. So yeah, probably other other solutions would, would make it easier. And also answering the second part of the question, I never used Annex. I tried to use it when back, back when Axon was very 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 alpha but i started working out on fridays and every friday when i came back the api was different so i, I end up giving up for trying it now i i've heard it uh, it has already gotcha. been um, been deployed. Yeah, NX has been very stable for a while. I, I, I have not used Axon either, but I've used NX for just like a mathematical problem to get like more accurate data. Like uh, I had this project that like predicts like planets, like their, their motion, their position. And obviously we can't do that with numbers. <laughs> NX is like ideal for that and like stuff like that, like uh, actual trig operations and stuff. So that's what like, I think the first thing that came to my mind is I, I'm also very new to genetic algorithms. Like Alan, like I basically didn't even know what they were uh, before this episode. And as soon as you start talking about them, like, yeah, there is definitely something there with NX and just like using it for analyzing any kind of data. <laughs> so, yeah, it's I would definitely be interested in like at least Googling if someone has given it a try or not. Yeah, to be honest, at the time we had to pre-calculate a bunch of values. For example, the expected returns for uh, for assets. So we we selected a couple of tokens, and we had to to actually select or calculate the expected returns, and also for the most complicated part at the end of of the day. We had to also calculate standard deviation, all that stuff, and I ended up with Python because that's what I had used back in the day when I was learning all this stuff uh, in college. I already knew how to do it, and as I said, it, it was a a hackathon, well, all that rush, all that uh, we need to make it fast. So what can I get? So I, I have that yeah. Python script. I can 
I can calculate standard deviation pretty easily. So to be honest, I didn't go back to statistics to see how do I calculate standard deviation. I just know that in Python, you can do it pretty much with a one-liner. And that's what I did. But if I had more time, for sure, that uh, I would like to test NX or even Explorer. Is it called uh, that way, right? Elixir has now uh, the Explorer where you can actually do things like Pandas. Right. Yeah. Livebook. Yeah. I think NX also has a standard deviation function. <laughs> right? oh, okay. it's, it's, it's it's basically like that num, NumPy, right? Like or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. it totally makes sense to use Python because because you're already like familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that when when you actually end up trying a lot, a lot of things, to be honest, I start to lose a bit of where can I do what uh, because uh, I I don't remember where that, where I did uh, that specific thing. But yeah, we ended up with with Python. It's not my perfect uh, preferred language, but I I can't complain. Yeah, I I had this guy over at my office to. to give kind of a quick introduction about data science because I, I know nothing and then I have one guy over here who's really into doing I think they're called kegels right these kind of problems in data science yep. and uh, it was it's pretty interesting like once he kind of gave me like a baby talk like you know from very like 20 feet up in the air and then like just kind of give me a very quick introduction about how it all works and it's definitely uh, advanced, but at the same time, like the more you learn about it, the more it's like, okay, you're just building upon previous ideas and, and, and that's what makes it really complicated. It's basically like a Legos kind of thing. So I'm still like assembling my two pieces at the beginning. I'm still trying to catch <laughs> up to everybody else. But yeah. uh, I, I do understand it's not that complicated. And so that's something I want to try to get into soon. To be honest, I think genetic algorithms are, are a pretty uh, good start on that sense because uh, they don't touch all that complicated part of machine learning and deep learning neural networks. You don't need to understand function activation, activation functions, uh, how many layers do you need on your uh, on your model, how to train it. Uh, you don't need, not need to worry about that. It's just plain mathematical stuff and then you need to lose a couple of, of time to make your uh, your fitness function and your mutation functions adapt to your to your situation but then you don't need to to worry about oh should i use convolution network here should i use this type of uh, different training system so i would say they are a pretty good start for you if you have interest in statistics and uh, all that stuff but yeah um, now that you have bumblebee and all that again face things with the in the elixir ecosystem it's pretty easy for you to to play with it i've been wanting to to try it but i haven't had the 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 time yet for sure that all those image classifications the text the prompt suggestions all those all those things are are pretty amazing to be honest and i think sean uh, sean moriarty i i expect to be pronouncing his name correctly also the same author of uh, the genetic algorithms book is very active on uh, on the data science part most of the projects are pushed on his side at least from what i see i follow him on twitter and also get to look at, at github contributors etc so i i assume yeah i'd say he's, he's the expert on this so <laughs> yeah the I, i'm only a, a follower <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it's actually been on my radar. I think we had someone from Nerves like at the end of last year. And I have this project that I've been wanting to do with Bumblebee and Im- image recognition with Nerves as an embedded system. I created the repo at the end of 
last year, December 29th. <laughs> and I've been meaning to add commits to that. But hopefully, hopefully I'll have something up and running by end of March. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, I think you're right. Like, I mean, I mean it, it's so easy with, you know, all these like abstractions now and it looks sort of do basic machine learning. It does feel like a lot shorter bridge to cross than it was earlier. So Yeah, even with Python, I don't think you have all, all this Oh, don't have this ecosystem and these uh, facilities to get something out of the, the air. You need to understand the algorithms or you need to at least uh, copy uh, specific lines of code from some Stack Overflow question. Here, it's pretty much you, you just set up the live book, you configure the cells and you, you get things showing and, and running. And it's a very rewarding uh, experience, to, to be honest, to actually see your uh, your models or um, the thing you're trying to predict, making, so, um, making responses or getting predictions, even if they are wrong. You actually see, oh, this learn this thing is learning. I'm somehow I'm making this this thing to predict or return results. So for me, it's a very rewarding experience. And uh, yeah, to be this is like hobby uh, thing because I, I've never ex- had like the use case to to use it on a professional uh, side. But yeah, we always try to to make those side projects that we never commit to like like you said Abby <laughs> and we go from project to project. I mean do you ever think that Elixir can get to the point where we can just remove the need to have Python? Because I'm aware like like again I, that guy came over and he basically said if you want to do data science you, you you pretty much have to get into Python. I mean Julia's doing pretty well but I think that no matter what there's so much stuff written with Python. There's no so much stuff kind of done because of it's just been like the forerunner in the space. Do you think we could ever catch up? I mean, would it take a long time to even get there? Yeah, uh, I would say you take, you're smoking uh, something. There's no way it's going to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Uh, the The amount of things that are written in, for Python, TensorFlow, all those TensorFlow is it's not technically Python, I guess, but uh, all of the the things that you have uh, running on top of it to interact with, with TensorFlow and all of those uh, training uh, mechanisms. And then um, uh, I'm missing the words for the, actually, when you mix in models, so you can do uh, extra things. So you, you train the model, but you, then you can mix them and use bagging and et cetera, et cetera. You will, all of that, you will, all of that things, all of those things in Python, indeed, I would say it requires a lot of work uh, in the space uh, from Elixir and more people also, uh, more hands to get that. Because in Python, well, you probably have some, I would say, 10 years, 15 years from this, from the beginning. I remember from classes, teachers uh, mentioning the Netflix, the Netflix competition back in the beginning, uh, like oh something, oh one or two, I, I I can't remember, but it's something to to look up, and where they made a competition for people to make predictions of what other users would would like to to see, and um, yeah, it's been around from from for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I I actually don't think the purpose here is even to like aim for replacing Python. It's to protect Elixir. I think that that's what I really like about Jose. He's approaching building Elixir community as if he's running a business. You know, he is minimizing or maximizing the likelihood that Elixir will be relevant 
in many areas in the future. And machine learning was an easy, easy win. There's like literally only three languages that do that well, <laughs> you know, and only one of them is general purpose. So Alexa being a general purpose language, kind of extracting out in that domain where, you know, about 85% of machine learning stuff now can be done with Elixir without using Python. You don't need the last 15% in Elixir for Elixir to survive. Like if, if you're doing crazy machine learning, you're probably building on top of something that's already built and Python is fine for that. But the goal has been achieved now. Elixir has expanded and it's easy to do moderate level machine learning with Elixir. And I think on to the next problem for Jose. That's what I, that's what I figure. I think he, he's maximizing the overall effectiveness of the language. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I mean, I, I guess maybe my my wording was too strong. I mean, because I'm I'm always I mean, okay, every language has really good benefits in certain areas, right? So, I mean, you, of course, you can never replace a language. I would say that really excels in some specific area. For me, I, I kind of look at it as I don't want to introduce another language, another kind of runtime or whatever, unless I really have to, right? So you're saying basically, even right now, you're saying that Elixir can do 85 percent of data science. Yeah. So it could probably fit for most cases. Right. And like with Bumblebee and like integration with like other models that are written in Python, being able to interact with models written in Python, you've already crossed that bridge, you know? Uh, you don't need, I, I think probably there's more stuff you can do in Elixir, but it won't give you as much return for the effort you'd have to put, right? Yeah. One thing that uh, I think that got Python out of basically winning the race is that the race if there there isn't a race, but I'll say that it's the the most selected one. It's because it has a, an easy syntax to understand for people that have only have mathematical background. I experienced that we had a lot of people uh, joining us on the master's degree that wouldn't come from the the computer science background. They would come over from st- statistics or mathematics. Um, and Python uh, or R uh, for them was very easy to understand, get a grasp of it and make quick models and get things running, even if it wasn't the, the best solution. And to be honest, even uh, inside the, the more technical and computer science background people or developers, I think that the fact that Elixir is functional and all, all those things, it's a great advantage for those who understand. But for people that that come from different backgrounds, I think it's a bit more difficult to, to understand. So that's why Python is always the first uh, selection on that case, because you may have a physical background, you want to modulate something, you probably won't pick, pick Elixir because I would say it has more concepts to understand before you actually start doing things while in python you you don't really need much to to understand at least that's why why i the way i see it okay yeah i I mean i don't have any more uh, questions i think i just need to kind of brush up on my (laughs) data science still and (laughs) finally crack open that book me too man (laughs) yeah yeah it has a cool chapter back one back in the end where you actually make a you don't make it, but you can play Tetris with uh, genetic algorithms. You, you, the book doesn't teach you how to play the game with, using genetic algorithms, but it gives you a taste of how you could do it. And you can also test it out with different games. So you should definitely read the book and uh, get your get your head thinking, how can I use this to play to play to play games? Other things that might might interest you. 
Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, I, I read a few very briefly. Remember reading that book at the right when I bought it. Again, it's on my library. What I really liked is I think there is a chapter there about tests too. Not every book does that. That's like very many of there's many like books that cover a very specific domain, but they don't even add a chapter for tests. I like to add a section for tests in every chapter, <laughs> but I, I appreciate that in a in a book that did not need as much testing, there was like a chapter uh, for tests and also like you know, a lot of exa- example code and stuff. So that's my two cents on the book. It, it sounds like a good book. <laughs> okay, yeah, uh, that sounds pretty cool. I'm, I'm happy to hear the testing part. Yeah, I, I love books that add testing in there. I mean, sure, it maybe distracts a little bit, but at the same time, I never even thought about that, but it would be nice to figure out how can I actually test to make sure that I recoded this properly for my model, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say that. Uh, yeah, I think that's property-based test, right? From what I remember, yep. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is there anything else you wanted to state before we move on to picks? No, I uh, I think uh, I've said everything. Uh, and definitely, it's a difficult concept to to explain in general. Uh, genetic algorithms or even data science in, in general, it's probably better written than uh, than explained because when you're writing stuff, you can think and rewrite and uh, do the process iteratively. But here, yeah, I, I hope that people actually understood and you all understood the the gist of it. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, great. And with that, I'm going to transition us over to picks. Maybe I think we always go to... I think the the host always goes last, right? I don't mind if I also go first, it's fine. But all right, Adi, what you got for us? <laughs> yes, I've got a few picks today. Um, so first one is um, this app called Temu or... It's like an, uh, e- uh, you know, um, e-commerce, uh, I guess, like online shopping, whatever you want to call it. It's very, it's gamified. It's very gratifying. If you like to online shop for a bit of happiness, which everyone finds it gratifying, right? To get the stuff, obviously, but it's also nice to spend money. But you don't want to spend too much time. Because Amazon is like, can, can sometimes be like, you know, I, I don't like spending, you know, more than 10 minutes on Amazon at once, like searching things, right? Temu is like very, you know, user focused, predicting your needs. It looks like it's got a lot of AI and they don't share information with uh, like GDPR compliant and stuff. So check that out. It's interesting, but I'm having a nice time with it. <laughs> so I wanted to share that with everyone. Another cool piece of, uh, this is like a hardware. This is like a Robovac. Uh, it's called Roborock. I have been, I've been using this for like four months now. I wanted to use it enough before recommending it. It's really cool. I'm a lazy person. I hate, you know, vacuuming and stuff. So we have like, you know, six uh, robo vacuums in the house for different uh, regions. And like, they also self-empty after cleaning. So I have to only replace the bag once a month. And they're pretty efficient to, you know, to clean their rotors very often. Like once a month cleaning needs to be done. And it's very simple. It takes like 15 minutes for like all the vacuums. Great thing about Roborock is they also use Elixir, I learned, which they're not the only Robovac that uses Elixir. Nito also uses Elixir now. So uh, it's quite interesting that Elixir is like, you know, the whole smart home nerves thing is like expanding that too. And it's very exciting to know that the product that I bought and I use, I learned later that they use Elixir. It's really cool. Um, so that that's another one. I got some good news. Uh, three people... Of the seven who reached out to me last two months, got jobs. Unfortunately, the other four are still in the hunt. Uh, but uh, it works. If you guys are looking for jobs, uh, uh, you know, if you want referrals uh, uh, and stuff, hit me up. Also, speaking of referrals, one of the companies that I've been advising 
is going live this week. So like when the episode will be published like a week or two before and they desperately need a founding engineer. Uh, I built their MVP. Well, it's not an MVP anymore. It's a product. They, they, it, it, they, have, a, they have revenue and it's got a bit of AI, got a bit of Python, but mostly it's pedal stack, 100% code coverage because I built it. That's how I do it. So if you want to work <laughs> in a, if I say to so myself, a nicely built Elixir pedal stack application, want to be a founding engineer, you want to do the startup grind, hit me up. It's it's a great exciting opportunity, and that's pretty. Actually, one more pick: a self promotion. So my book will be out in two weeks for beta. Finally, after two years of work. So yeah, uh, I was gonna say pre order, but you can just order it now. So go ahead and buy it. Uh, don't be too harsh while uh, you know while judging me. <laughs> on it but it basically teaches you how to build a web framework like phoenix from start it teaches you how to build a web server obviously not profession not production grade because you know it's a book the scope is very limited but at least demystifies you know how those things kind of work under the hood a little bit so you'll know a little bit more about how phoenix works how web servers work and also like wrapping everything into like a nice digestible metaprogramming interface like how to do that how, how to make it testable how to make it introspectable and stuff like that so yeah uh, go ahead and check it out i'll leave links to all of these in the description okay yeah i was looking for for some of the links that you were talking about so i think that goes on to me next right or did you say the guest the guest uh, okay so ready you got your picks ready yes i think so I'll start with a very interesting pick, probably. And I would have to say the, the series of Last of Us from HBO, because I don't see series from a few years, for a few years. I haven't seen anything, uh, not even Game of Thrones, uh, all the things that people actually end up watching. Not really sure why, but I, I think uh, it takes much commitment for me to go uh, every week and watch an episode but as a player as a former player of the last of us and i still expect for the next game to to come up i've been watching this series and uh, i'd like to to recommend it for people that haven't been watching it yet next i would say i'll suggest or pick code bullet from from youtube it's uh, actually a, a youtube channel uh, with uh, funny, funny videos for uh, data science stuff. Basically, each video is pretty much uh, demystification of uh, of a model or a complex AI thing. Basically, playing, trying to playing, try to playing a game. For example, playing Tetris or uh, teaching it uh, how to how to walk. Yeah, I would say that it's a very cool YouTube channel and also. Uh, for people that want to know more about uh, the topic, it's for sure uh, a good place to, to start and have a few laughs. It also uses genetic algorithms most of the time, so it's uh, it's a plus there. I'll say uh, I'll pick a last one just because I'd like to suggest this book every time. It's not a technical book, but it's Range by David Epstein. It's pretty much uh, a book talking about how people with different skill sets uh, or basically the, the T-shaped uh, skills can actually perform better uh, than people that were very, very, very specific uh, trainings uh, on, uh, on a specific subject. For example, it starts uh, by comparing 
I don't remember if it was Nadal or Roger Federer, but it was on one of one of these. Uh, it starts by comparing them with one of the, one of them uh, with Tiger Woods. Basically, Tiger Woods started uh, by playing golf from a very young age, while um, the the tennis player that I don't remember, I'm, I've read the book a couple of years ago, had a pretty broad start in the sports. He, he played football, he did this, he did that, and he still performed at high, at high tournaments. So yeah, I see myself as a jack of all trades, probably a master of none. I'm not really sure. I expect I have a master of um, something. Uh, I don't know. At least I'll try to be one day. But yeah, I, I like to think that coming up to a new subject or a new a new field, the other things that I, I have encountered will help me get a, a good a good way. That's it. Oh, great! Some good picks. Yeah, for me, I just have one pick as usual. I've been picking video games because I'm finally getting back to video games these days. My latest video game I'm playing these days is called World War Z Aftermath. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit late to the bandwagon, but it's a lot of fun. I enjoyed the movie up until the ending. I thought it was not very nice. But seeing a swarm of zombies running up to you and kind of making a pyramid, and, and it's pretty scary looking. And playing the game, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty exciting. So uh, if you guys haven't checked it out, I think it's a pretty good game. I'm playing on Steam these days. Yeah, that's that's my uh, pick, just that one pick for right now. So, Diago, uh, welcome or to come on and explain more about uh, data science. I really appreciate that. And it's cool to see that, you know, you used it in a hackathon and pretty, you know, wrote up an article about it, kind of inspired me to start taking a look more at this. So I appreciate you coming on. And with that, thank you so much for coming on and hopefully have you back on again. Yeah, cool. Thanks for uh, for having me. It was a pleasure.